at the UN Climate Conference COP27 in Egypt, we took a closer look at the future of our planet. How do we build, eat, cook, invest and live if we are to meet the 1.5 degree target of the Paris Agreement by 2050? What changes need to be made and how will they impact our everyday lives? Every action that limits global heating can reduce the suffering endured by people from climate impacts. Drastic emission reduction is necessary, and every fraction of a degree counts. We all know that the future starts with the decisions we make today. So that's why the Nordic countries invited to daily debates at the Nordic Pavilion at the COP27. In this special series of the Nordic Talks podcast, we invite you to listen in on how we drew up the lines of life in the world of tomorrow. I'm Andrea Molt. Welcome. The focus this morning will be on the Arctic societies and how they can contribute to the green transition towards net zero. And we ask, can Arctic societies be agents of change in the green transition? And we are hopeful for the answers. Uh, with me here on the stage is um, Sara Ulsvik, International Chair in its Circum Circumpolar Council. Welcome. And we also have Ola Elvestun, member of the Norwegian Parliament and also member of the Standing Committee uh, on Energy and the Environment. And least, uh, last but not least, uh, Aviaya Jepsen, Special Advisor to the Greenland Government. Welcome, all of you. And I'm going to start with you, uh, Aviaya, because, I mean, the Arctic has warmed almost three times quicker than the average for the planet. The effects of climate change are visible already today. And um, how do you, in Greenland, uh, see this today? How, how do you uh, feel it in your everyday life? Okay, so thank you, Andre, for inviting us. And thank you for, well, hello to all of you. But um, so climate change is quite visible in Greenland, as you've just mentioned. For the 26th year in a row, we've seen that the, um, that the inland ice has melted, which, which means that it's, like, it's getting smaller and smaller for the 26th year in a row. This is affecting everyday life in Greenland in many different ways. And it's also affecting uh, fisheries and agriculture in various different ways. So generally speaking, we see longer periods of drought and we also see a lot of more precipitation precipitation so a lot longer periods with rain and shorter winters this of course affects everyday life in greenland because we're quite dependent on the winter we're quite dependent on nature so yeah so we might think uh, it causes problems as it does for the for the greenlandic culture but but does it also create opportunities um so in greenland we have we've always had these very large hydropower potentials. So we see that the, um, the melting ice actually contributes to extending and making these uh, hydropower resources larger. Sara, um, the Arctic societies have always had to adapt to harsh climates. 
there's no easy living up there. Uh, but um, how do you see this? Um, uh, how should I say um, ability to adapt to to the harsh climate to be um, a strength? Is it a strength on the way forward? The ability to ad adapt to, to the climate change. Well, yes. Um, first of all, as indigenous peoples of the Arctic, uh, Inuit and Sami, who also live in, in the Nordic countries you represent, um, we have lived there for thousands of years. We have adap adapted through uh, changing uh, climate, changing political structures. Uh, much of our commonalities uh, evolves around being colonized. Uh, and therefore, uh, it is uh, exactly these Nordic states that, that, that are here at this podium that, that are the ones that, that um, we speak to when we say that our indigenous peoples organizations are exactly the ones who have brought forward the message of democracy in these processes, the message of making sure that we participate in decision making, that our right of self-determination is respected, even if our... Arctic, our homeland, is, has become over decades an iconic case in climate change because we see the rapid changes as visibly and tangibly that we do in the Arctic. So we come here to the COP with messages of including us in, in all decision-making processes, including these uh, international processes. <laughs> Sorry. As indigenous peoples, as was said when our organization, the Inuit Circumpolar Council, was founded, uh, we, do not, we are not a nation state, but we constitute a nation. We are a people living across state borders. Inuit live across the state borders of Russia, Alaska, the US, Canada, and Greenland. So we consider our ecosystem holistically as one system. If you look at the map, and see Inuit Nunat, you will see that very clearly. I invite you to look at these protocols we have developed for ethical and equitable engagement with us in any processes that are to take place in the Arctic, so that we are not longer just an iconic example uh, of the climate change, but we are directly involved, because we are the peoples who will fight till the last drop of blood with each of ourselves in our body because we are talking about our homelands and our homelands are directly and uh, directly connected to and indivisible from our culture. So this also has to do with our human rights. So we call on the Nordic states to fully recognize us as equal partners in these processes. We have been in many other processes. Nordic states are, you know, democratic, open, human rights at the, on the agenda and prioritize. So we need to take the last steps and truly become equal partners uh, in bringing these messages to the world. Ola, uh, how then do we go about uh, giving the, if you like, indigenous communities that sense of uh, being treated equally? Well, in Norway, for speaking mm. from Norway, it's always very important that we always remember that we are, as we say, you're one country, but two peoples or two nations. So it's Norwegian and it's a Sami. And that is, that is, uh, that is just the, the way we have to think and the way we have to, to move about. So 
all the formal consultations with the Sami parliament has to be there. And, but the topic is very relevant because we have just had a Supreme Court decision in Norway about a, a new a windmill that was uh, declared that this is illegal and it's breaking the human rights of the individual reindeer herders in that area, in the middle parts of, uh, of Norway. And now we have to deal with this. Uh, and it's important not only for, from Norway, because of course this is the, this is the international human rights, uh, paragraph 27. And, uh, and so this is relevant also for all other countries uh, and how they in act and how they take into the decision making and make decisions that are in, uh, that follows the, the international obligations that we have and, and also follows the procedures so that all indigenous peoples are taken in in the decision making process. But this was then a uh, um, decision in the High Court. Uh, but that was, the reason for that being taken to the, to the High Court was a political decision to put the windmills in the area of the Sami people. So uh, then how, and yeah, I, I should mention also that he has, it has been not only in the Sami uh, areas, but also all over Norway being a very polarized debate uh, as when it comes to windmills. So let, let me then ask you, how do we actually build bridges uh, between the green solutions and the surrounding areas, uh, including the indigenous people when we put up green mills? I mean, you have yourself been uh, Minister for Environmental uh, Environment and Climate. So if you were to get that post again, what would you do to ensure that we build bridges? Well, first of all, we have to we have to respect the formal uh, position that you have. Like in Norway, we have uh, I mean, in Parliament, government is making their decisions, and then you have the Sami Parliament that is democratically elected, and then you also have the organizations that uh, reindeer herders that have, and uh, and of course, so it it is about having a the communication has to be there. And we have a legally binding uh, system where we have to consult every decision. But what is uh, also said in this uh, uh, high court decision is that those procedures, they are more, uh, they're too much just hooking off that, that the, the procedures has been done. But it's not really functioning as a way to move forward to find the solution. Uh, so that is really what we have to work with. Now, I'd, I do not think this is really new. I mean, we have uh, major conflicts also early, back in the 1980s with, uh, with um, uh, power plants in Alta. Uh, everyone in Norway knows that. That was very important also for the, um, the, uh, the wake up in a way, also to, to, to giving or not giving that because it's nothing that you that you give it's the indigenous people that they are getting their rights and it's much better institutionalized now but i think it, what is happening is that you have this discussion that is probably not only in norway that climate change is so uh, fundamental that and we really need uh, uh, renewable energy 
So you have a tendency now that you go in a way that, yes, you have to break some eggs. That now, now it's renewable energy that has to be in the forefront. And even though it, is a, it can be uh, negative for nature and also other interests. And that is a road that we cannot walk down. Because uh, we need to... Ind uh, indigenous rights are just as important now that we are to make this green major shift. And uh, we have a nature crisis also. So it's just that we have to be, we have to be better. It is not, um, we need more renewable energy, but it's not, the situation is not that now you kind of like have to accept everything because that is the major part. We have to make all these decisions and balance it every time. Avi uh, let me then ask you, how, how do you uh, see Arctic communities uh, being agents of change? What, what can you bring to the table? So... The government of Greenland has decided not to just be passive bystander, bystanders of uh, global ch uh, climate change, but are actually working actively to, um, to move over to renewable energies by um, establishing hydropower plants. Uh, the national utility company, Negociorfeit, has mapped out all um, solar, wind and hydropower resources in Greenland and are working towards 100% renewable energy in Greenland uh, based on this. So at the moment we have five hydropower plants in Greenland. Um, very soon we're going to have six and the government is also looking into uh, investing in more and also um, in May of uh, this year, the government of Greenland invited uh, international investors to a dialogue on exploring and um, using huge hydropower potentials that we have in Greenland for maybe ammonia or hydrogen um, production. Thank you. Um, Sara, as chair of Inuit uh, Circle Polar Circumpolar, that's a difficult word to mo this morning. Circumpolar Council. How can traditional knowledge uh, be an asset in getting sector transition and, uh, and uh, affect the uh, policy decisions? Well, first of all, um, we call it indigenous knowledge. Indigenous knowledge, we call it that because as peoples, that knowledge is something that is intergenerational. And it's also based not only on knowledge as uh, the Western world would know it, the scientific knowledge, but also a more deep knowledge of the land that we live on, of the ecosystems, of the climate that we carry with us through those uh, generations who live, live in, in, in our land. So we call on indigenous knowledge to be uh, equally uh, included in in the processes of finding solutions, in the processes of decision-making. It's also a very real debate in Greenland, for example, on fish stocks, on uh, management of wildlife. Uh, and, and it is a, always a, a much stronger result we get when we ensure that we include all uh, kinds of knowledges. So we call on institutions that work with the Arctic to have a paradigm shift in how they view the production of knowledge and make sure that they co-produce knowledge with us, because it only makes uh, the results stronger. 
Um, and uh, now we are talking about adaptation and mitigation, and this COP has a lot of focus on the economy, on the flow of money around the world to make sure that there, is, uh, there are initiatives taken. And here we also bring a very me important message, which is, which is to, to, to urge governments to recognize the false dichotomy of developed and developing. Because as you see, many indigenous peoples live in G20 countries. And we are not always the ones that are in the forefront of, of uh, access and accessing funding. So this is also a recommendation that is now uh, in uh, the Arctic Caucus, as we call it, where it's Inuit and Sami together, and in the indigenous caucus and the papers that are produced there through uh, the, 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 the uh, collective recommendations to the world on indigenous people's access to funding. So for us to truly be there at the table and take part in these processes, it takes first of all recognition of our knowledge as equal knowledge to all other knowledge. And second of all, that we actually have access and here funding is a fundamental issue, access so that we can be represented, so that we can co-produce knowledge. So um, it's, I think that there are hopes for the future uh, if we work together uh, in recognition and see the world more colorfully than uh, what we usually see in a very dichotomized uh, way of working politically uh, in internationally. And it is here indigenous peoples bring the colors to the table and make uh, a more representative picture of the complex world we live in. Ola, you wanted to comment on that, Ola. I think the, the, um, the very good point is that, it, that with the indigenous knowledge and then scientific research, it has to work together. When it, uh, um, because everything is decision-making. And uh, there's always decisions being made, and there's always conflicts with these decisions. We have a tendency that, yeah, we have a tendency that um, the scientific research and in the digital knowledge becomes uh, parallel processes. And then it becomes uh, just part of the disagreement. So what we need to make sure is that these work really, that they work together and work together in practical terms, then I really think that, because then they can add on to each other, and as you say, then we, we, we will get a, a better decision-making uh, uh, process, and we also get a better knowledge for that decision-making. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Glasgow, the Greenland Prime Minister announced that, the Greenland, uh, that Greenland will join the Paris Agreement. Now it's kind of put on hold, why is that? Um, so it, it's true that the, our prime minister did, um, made this announcement at COP26. Um, so what has happened since then is that we've started the work of a national climate strategy. Um, this will include civil organizations, uh, civil society, um, the industry, all the actors that we can collect to contribute to this. So the plan is to make this holistic strategy that takes all these um, factors into account. And also, um, we got a new government in April this year, and they decided that we need to make an analysis before making a final decision on whether to ratify the Paris Agreement. So this analysis looks into what consequences can we expect it to have 
if and when Greenland joins the Paris Agreement? Yeah, I, I kind of thought you would like to comment on that, Sarah. Are, are, you, are you hopeful? Well, I'm also hopeful on that, but I just wanted to say, and uh, I mean, I, I've, the Paris Agreement is an important agreement, but it's also negotiated exactly between those states and nations in the way that we have divided the world previously. We also see at the uh, Sustainable Development Goals uh, and that process, wonderful, uh, wonderful goals that bring together the world in one agenda and one goal, like the Paris Agreement. But in both of those processes, indigenous peoples and their messages, we were there, indigenous people were there. They were not all, always fully included. Indigenous peoples have always called on the, the, the definition of sustainability to include culture, for example. That, is that reflected enough in the SDW, in SDG goals? Uh, in the Paris Agreement, the, the initial criticism towards the Paris Agreement from the then Greenland government was that it didn't include enough indigenous people's interests, that they were still too marginalized, that it was still too difficult to reach uh, an implementation of that if you are not a rich country. And a, or a nation state. So I think that the, I hope the government of Greenland will, will, will sign the Paris Agreement. It's always been my opinion that they should. But I also think that the world needs to reflect on these agreements if they truly, truly uh, represent and engage uh, the diversity of the world enough. There were several comment, uh, comments in there. Ola, you first, and then Aviaya. First of all, I think these global agreements, they can never be perfect. Uh, I mean, the UN is a member organization and it's all its members with all the varieties and problems and difficulties. And, and <laughs> what is troubling with members that has to agree. But I think the core of the Paris Agreement is that it's, it's a mo it is to mobilize on every level. level. And it's a bottom-up agreement where nation states has to, has to do their part, and it's most important, where groups of nations has to do their part, but also where local communities, organizations, peoples, everyone has to do their part. And I think that is, that is uh, and we have to think about it like that. Uh, with Greenland and with everyone else has to be part and be part of the solution and not part of the problem. But when it comes to indigenous peoples, I think, and it's important in the Nordic countries or, or in the high north also to remember that, to reach our climate goals, in the, uh, indigenous people's human rights has to be way more respected and it's a crucial part of reaching uh, the Paris Agreement goals. If that is to preserve rainforests, if it's to preserve the natural world in many parts of the world, but we have to remember that it's the same thing in the high north. And that is, as I mentioned, when it comes to this high court decision in Norway, it's, yes, we have to work on, on working together when to the decision making to make the the, the, the confrontations as uh, few as possible, but in the end, it is not something that we can just discuss our way through, because there is a, a, a human right that is the base there. And, uh, and we also have to remember that, and the High Court says, there is a line that cannot be crossed by the Norwegian state and also in other uh, states. It cannot be crossed. So there is a, a human right there. So I think the Paris Agreement 
um, followed up rightfully, can be a tool to strengthen the focus on human rights for indigenous peoples, definitely. Abiyaya, you also had uh, some thoughts on this. Please, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so it's important for me to say that even if the Greenland government is not yet, or if it, we end up not being a part of the Paris Agreement, Greenland is still doing a lot for the climate. We're building hydropower plants, we're putting up solar panels in towns and settlements. Uh, we put up the first windmills a few years ago, and we're looking into ways to further this and to develop this even more. So there are clear goals, whether or not we're a part of the Paris Agreement. Thank you. Uh, Ola, you, you actually mentioned uh, that this is a, uh, the Paris Agreement is a bottom-up. Um, then let me ask, uh, when we think of, of indigenous societies, um, wh what do you think? Will we get everyone on board in this transition? Uh, and, and how? Uh, Sara or, or Aviaya, maybe? I was just asking um, if uh, the uh, Paris Agreement is a bottom-up, as Ola just said, then how do we get everyone on board in this, uh, uh, thinking of indigenous societies? Oh. It is it on? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's on. Um, well, I think that, that it's, it's, it's also about recognizing that the world does not only consists of nation states. So the indigenous peoples of the Nordic countries, exactly us, Inuit and Sami, we live across state borders, as I said in the beginning. Uh, we live across state borders that are today difficult to collaborate across, but that does not make climate change or the ecosystem or the animals uh, or any other living being on the planet except from us people human species, um, not think of, that does not like make any, anyone else than us uh, uh, forget about, or what do you call it? <laughs> the state borders are only something we have drawn on maps, and the ecosystem and the climate change does not know those state borders. So to be able to work together across those uh, nation-states borders is essential to, to actually have an impactful and meaningful engagement and effective uh, adaptation initiatives in the Arctic. So we have a real challenge right now where I think that the state should really consider carefully how do we maintain the collaboration in the Arctic with those states or that state that we at the moment cannot work with. Because on a short term, medium, long term, long term, it will be a disaster if we are not working together across the Arctic in, uh, in uh, uh, preventing climate change and do ad doing adaptation. So it's a real, real challenge where I think indigenous peoples pose a, um, an example of collaboration that can exist even in, in hard times. Our organizations existed during the Cold War. We were formed during the Cold War. Um, and I think that there's a worldview and a way of thinking there that that we have to hold on to the very thin thread of in these years. Okay, thank, thank you, Sara. I mean, the time has been flying. It's been so interesting talking to you guys. We have one final question, and I need a short answer from each of you. 
we have this focus on the future here at the Nordic Pavilion. Uh, we have been asking everyone, how does the future look like or the Nordics look like in, in uh, 2050? Let me rephrase this. Um, what will the Arctic societies look like in 2050? We're starting with you, Avia. So we will have 100% renewable energy. We will have electrified, um, like, yeah, heat systems, what do you call them? Um, transport on land, and we will also have um, power to X. So, I'm sorry, this is kind of... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a very challenging question, but we foresee that um, transport in the air and on the sea will also be based on climate-friendly, um, what do you call them? Fuel, yes, exactly. Which is why we're also looking into like developing power to X in Greenland. Mm. So we see everything will be green. Thank you, Ulla. To stop uh, global warming cannot uh, cannot be reached in the Arctic. I mean, it's the rest of the world that really has to act, and that's the that uh, that is where we have to to have the greatest strides, and the pace has to be much faster. But at the same time, it's a paradox that you look at some of the Arctic communities, uh, if you like, um, uh, for per person, <laughs> they really consume a lot of, uh, of fossil fuels uh, by themselves. So I think that we should, uh, and also even though there's decision that there's a lot that we can, uh, that there will be disagreement on, uh, there's something that we should agree on. And that is that the Arctic also should be in the forefront. Uh, of reducing their own emissions and show how you can have uh, societies in difficult environments that also can become zero uh, emission societies. And I think, it's, I think it's a powerful signal and it has a, a, uh, an importance way beyond the, the amounts that they reduce of emissions in those societies by themselves. Thank you. Sara. Yes, thank you. Well, um, uh, our main message, one of our main messages from the Inuit Circumpolar Council at this COP is also that the reality that Inuit faced for decades, uh, that climate change uh, is real and it's affecting our lives, our culture, our human rights, is now a global reality. We see uh, massive and, and very, uh, uh, what do you call it, volsame, uh, um, uh, violent <laughs> is that a real word uh, uh, for climate uh, climate you know uh, uh, events around the world floods and, and uh, eroding uh, coastlines like even also in Inuit Nunat in Alaska um, and, and storms that are stronger than, than we have seen so these events are really showing that this is now a global reality but it was a reality for Inuit in the Arctic for a long time. So hopefully there will be a, a, a just and a fair uh, way to work ahead with states and peoples, all peoples included, because I really do believe that we bring to the table uh, some uh, worldviews that are not necessarily represented when we try to salute, uh, have, find solutions only among the states. So to learn from those experiences that our peoples have from the Arctic uh, it will be important because, as we always say, uh, uh, protecting the Arctic is protect to, to protect the planet 
and the cooling of the planet comes a lot of it comes from the Arctic. So we have to be part of it uh, on a global scale as well. Sara Ulsvik, thank you for being here. Ola Elvesun, thank you. Avihaya Epsen, thank you everybody for uh, such an interesting talk. <laughs> <laughs>